Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. We all want to build a better business so we can be better architects. Well, a better business starts with planning for profit. Download your free course, Profit for Small Firm Architects, at entrearchitect.com slash free course. You're listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 189. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect, just trying to make a difference. This podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, FreshBooks, Core by BQE Software and RCAT. And I'm going to share more about these great companies later in the show. But before we get started here, just take a quick note to schedule some time later today, as soon as you're finished listening here, to go visit each one of them and let them know that you appreciate them for supporting us, the Entree Architect community. Tabitha Ponte, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so very much. I am uh, excited to be here and uh, thank you for all your help uh, this week too with our uh, babies campaign. That was fantastic. Yeah, you're, you're very, very welcome. Um, it's my pleasure to help and we can get into that a little bit too. I'd, I'd love to uh, talk about what that was and why you did that. Let me tell the audience a little bit about you, who you are. 
Uh, Tabitha Ponte is a licensed architect and builder, a philanthropist, a mother, and a wife who's leading Ponte Health and affiliate companies, a firm based in Orlando, Florida, specializing in single source delivery, resources management, and best outcomes, serving exclusively the healthcare market sector. And Tabitha's story is fascinating to me. I've been following her. She's been a friend of mine online for a long time. We've communicated over the years uh, and I've watched her sort of grow and then sort of slowly disappear and I didn't see you for a little while. And then you came back with a vengeance and you're all over the place now and you are growing like a wildfire. It is it is so exciting to watch you. So I want to get into that story. I want to share that story with our listeners so they can follow your journey too. Uh, let's Let's start with your origin story. Let's start with going way, way back to where you discovered architecture what inspired you to become an architect, and then give us that story to up to where you are today, and then we'll we'll go from there. Okay, I will try to make it as short as possible. <laughs> My origin, uh, I was a child, actually, when I discovered architecture. I must have been seven or eight, and I remember uh, talking to my mother uh, in a car, specifically, in Caracas, Venezuela, which is where I spent my childhood, um, telling her about how I felt about uh, spatial structures. I basically told her something along the lines of mom. I, uh, it's funny. I don't see the stuff. I see the void. I see the emptiness <laughs> in, in so many words that said something yeah. like that. So she said, Tabitha, let me tell you what an architect and an engineer, uh, th what they do. So she explained to me the difference between architecture and engineering in that car ride. And Right away, I told her, I am going to be an architect. Um, and I, and I, seriously, I had to be probably seven or eight. Yeah. Um, it has sort of progressed. I did have family members in architecture. Most of them were men um, that I watched make models and do drawings. And um, one of them, and this was probably uh, significantly influential for me, one of them um, designed and built his own house. And I spent significant time in that house. It was sort of like a mid-century modernist, um, simple, lots of concrete and steel. And, you know, and I vividly remember sort of the, the, the influence that the house had on me and knowing that he created it. It just sort of added to that, like I'm going yeah. to be an architect. Um, How old was I, that when you, when you, that house? The house, it was still around the same, same time, time, seven, okay. eight, nine, ten, yeah. around that age. Yeah. Uh, so I worked, uh, despite being very involved in music at the time, um, I always worked with the notion that I would, that I would go to architecture school and my, um, also despite my life being difficult, uh, along the way, I still sort of saw that, um, I didn't make it to architecture school until I was about 24, okay. but uh, I was one of the, uh, more, I don't want to call them mature students, but yes, I was sort of in the higher end of the age range yeah. to start architecture school. So, so that's a, so that's what 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 delayed you from starting architecture school? Um, working, I always had to work. Um, I believe I was seventeen. I, I don't think I was even eighteen when I left my household to be self sufficient. Um, so I, I was, you know, a waitress and, um, went around lots of different restaurants, uh, worked really long hours, many days. Um, and I, though I started college early because I was one of those dual enrollment kids, 
um, there was a point where I had um, sort of a depressive state of chaos that broke all that off. Yeah. And, I, and I had a, a break of three or four years before I was able to get back on it. Um, I had moved cities, um, and I, when I got back on, I was in the Fort Lauderdale area, which is where, where I went to school. So how did you, did, did school bring you to the U S from Venezuela? Uh, yes, but I was born here. I'm actually, okay. uh, born in Fort Pierce, which is this tiny, tiny town in the East coast of Florida. Um, and I went back to Fort Pierce. That's where I went to high school. Um, and where I started college. Okay, so you were born here, went to Venezuela, came back around high school age. Yes, went yes. through high school, then stayed in Florida for college, and mm -hmm. then and then gra did you graduate from Fort Lauderdale? Yes, I graduated. Eight, I think it took me about eight years <laughs> to graduate architecture school, um, and it was in Fort Lauderdale. And then the I worked all along. I was one of those. Um, kids that, or by this time adult, I guess, that I worked all through college. So all of my architecture school was simultaneous to uh, IDP. So, you know, that new track that IDP has for people to get licensed faster, yep. I managed to do that before that existed. <laughs> and <laughs> I know, I, I actually have a letter from the state of Florida that I'd finished my IDP hours before I got my diploma from college. So it, you were, so you were working in sucks. architecture? Yes. During school. Yes. Got it. Yeah. And I used to tell people to do it and people thought I was a crazy person, but uh, I was eligible for my exam literally the year I graduated. Were you working all in the same firm or were you moving around to different firms? I did three different firms through college. I started in Fort Pierce um, with a firm called uh, Peacock and Lewis out of West Palm Beach. Uh, they have a, a, I don't know if it's still there, but it must be in Fort Pierce, a small office. I was there and then um, I moved to like a mid-sized commercial firm in Fort Lauderdale and but I'd already I'm trying to go back to the timeline my my brain's a little scattered but I worked in construction somewhere in that point right in a high-rise is uh, a place called Asolas River House I was on the job site as a assistant project manager basically while, while you were in school you were doing that. while I was in school um, and you know, so they hated architects and I said, maybe I can be a better one if I understand both yeah, sides. Yeah, I did. I did the same thing. I didn't work on, <laughs> on, uh, commercial. I did it with residential, but I did the same thing for yeah. the same reason, because I wanted to know why contractors didn't like architects. Exactly. I came up, I came from a family that, that had builders and carpenters and I constantly heard how the architects were no good and I wanted yes. to know why. And so I did that same thing. Yeah. So by the time I got through that, which was about a year on a job site, like in the trailer yeah. uh, for a structural uh, subcontractor. So we did the steel and concrete. I did lots of takeoffs and man hours and uh, things like that, RFIs and things of that nature. Um, I got picked up by by PGAL, which is a significantly large firm out of Texas, but they have a Boca Raton office. And I did all of my IDP hour at uh, PGAL in Boca Raton. Um, when I graduated, I was given the opportunity to sort of step up into a leading role as a an architectural project manager, if you will. But then the market crashed, which was, you know, it, it, I try to put it all together. But at the end of the day, it was 2008, like 
everything sort of fell apart, especially in Florida. Yeah. Um, and all of that eventually led me to Chicago, which so, is, you know, so before the, the we get into Chicago, <laughs> so, so in Florida, you're going to art, you're going to architecture school. You're, you're, you're taking art, you know, uh, you're working in architecture firms, you're working out in the construction in, in real construction. You're not just sitting yes. there watching and visiting sites. You're actually yes. in there doing uh, construction, learning the business of construction and the administrative parts of it, yep. doing all of that work from both sides. And then you and then you you graduate from I did with all that experience and so did mm -hmm. you did you stay in Florida at first or did as soon as you graduated you were out No I stayed a little longer but through that market crash so it wasn't helpful you know like yeah. um I was in a like I said in a sort of a leading um, architectural PM position when I got out not with PGA or with another firm um, at this point, I, I led and did the design of something called Miami Green Lab, which was a lead gold for the city of Miami, which they use at, as their sustainability office. Um, and right after that, I sort of couldn't find my way back into architecture uh, with, again, the market crash um, that became... Uh, convoluted in the state. Not a lot of people could work, period, in architecture. Yeah. I even think that office that I was with uh, at the time for Green Lab disappeared. The whole office <laughs> disappeared. Yeah. And that happened with a lot of firms here. I actually remember, without naming any names, I remember a firm with two or 300 people that disappeared overnight in the same, around the same time. So it's just all the work here halted. And so that, that so you said, okay, I'm out. Um, something like that. Yes. Yeah. And so what, I, what I pulled to you to Chicago about school again? Yeah. Well, Chicago, I had visited and somehow I thought I'd probably live in the city and it was between Chicago and Germany. I had both opportunities. Um, I was given, um, admission into the German school that Mies van der started in, in Bauhaus. Um, so I was, I was going to go there. Yeah. Uh, but then I was given the opportunity to just, just stay in the States and go to Chicago. And Mies was there. Right. Um, and I'm a, I'm a, a big Mies fan. If, if you know anything about me, I even have a tattoo that says so. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, yes, I have a, you'll see it right here, a less is more on my wrist. I see that, for yeah. Mies yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big uh, modernist, if you will. But um, That's dedication to tattoo yes. it to your wrist. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's also a small reminder of what it really means that less is more. Yeah. Um, it's it's not just about me. for me. It, ha it had more meaning than that. But um, so I ended up in Chicago rather than Germany, but in the same sort of space, this place where uh, mid-century modern and design build are appreciated. Um, me started uh, Crown Hall and the architecture school at Illinois Tech, which is where I did my graduate degree. Now, because of the market crash and because of my experience through that point, I didn't do architecture as my graduate degree. I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do, uh, at least for me. I really um, felt like I needed to complement um, architecture. And I'd already gotten past my IDP and I was testing so what I did when I went to IIT is actually I started in structural because I've always been fascinated by it. But after about a year, I thought, well, if I stay in structural, even though I'll finish, I'm still in the design phase. 
And I made the deliberate decision to move over to the construction phase. So construction is what became my graduate degree uh, from Illinois Tech. And it's it's in there. It's actually both an engineering and a management degree. So it's, it's a management but engineering based. So you have all this architecture experience undergrad. Mm-hmm. And it's your passion is the architecture. Mm-hmm. You, you go to Chicago in order to sort of expand your knowledge and, and have this experience with with uh, Mies and his world up there. Um, start in structural and end up in, in construction because you realize mm-hmm. that's where you really want to be. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? Um, well, Chicago got uh, dense and busy and cold for me. Yeah, um, it is cold. <laughs> it's really cold. I mean, the year I left, which was not that long ago, uh, got to a negative 55. And as a Floridian, that negative 55 was just really something really difficult to handle for me. I really couldn't, I couldn't bear it anymore, the idea of being in the winter. And, and I always thought, oh, maybe if I could be um, a snowbird and share my space between Chicago and Florida, it would be fantastic. So that's where I stand today, trying to be that person that is in both places. Uh, but um, so... That time passed, and you remember, I took this road trip around the country and did a lot of mountain climbing for introspection, (laughs) in Oregon particularly. Um, And I didn't think I would come back to Florida. I really didn't. But life would have it that it would pull me toward my family. And then, I don't know if it was like motherly nature, it, it sunk in and I started to cry and I have to stay here with my niece and nephews. Your roots. Um, Yes, my the children, you know, my my sister's kids, I'd missed almost their whole lives uh, through school and working. And I and that sort of kept me in Florida and in the Orlando area specifically, because I even thought maybe I'll go back to Miami, Fort Lauderdale, which is what I know. And nope, I stayed in Orlando. (laughs) Yeah. So when you were up in Chicago, you were in Chicago when we first met, when we first connected, you were in Chicago. Yes. Yes. Um, and actually, we did actually the only one. Uh, we did a, a podcast recording early, early on in the Ontario Architect podcast um, about a school you were developing. And so you you started developing a school and then you decided, OK, right as I was going to pr- uh, publish the podcast, you said, I'm considering a change. And you and you changed changed direction at that point. Can you just talk about that school a little bit about what that was and why make that change? Yes, I will. I will also try to keep it brief. The reason for the school was because I really feel like I want people to know how I've developed. Uh, I've been able to, as some of us do, but not everybody, develop this more holistic self in this field um, that it's capable of not just of design, but of resources management and leading a job site. And so the, the idea of the school was that. But it was such, there was such pressure, I felt, against my developing the school generally. It was just so hard. And I, and you remember this, I invested years. Yeah, that's why, that's why I don't want to skip over it. Because I think it's a very important part of your story. And I think it's it's a, it's a significant ingredient in where you are today. Yes. So it was really about teaching what I know. And how I've been able to, and, and really, two things happened that led me to stop and to do what I do now. 
Um, one thing is I got sick and not once, but twice. And both times I, I was in a sort of a deathbed situation. The first was in Chicago, as you recall. I had an incident uh, that was with my digestive system and it basically shut down and they couldn't find an answer. And I spent two weeks through radiation and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it was stress built up over time for my work and education and all of that. Um, it, I had to make some serious life changes. That's what led me to yoga and the way I eat and then climbing mountains and all these things. Um, and then the second event was more recent here, which was my, my small stroke that I suffered um, a little over a year ago now or about a year ago now. That was sort of the ultimate straw yeah. of of. of of stopping the push against a system and just reverting back to developing a self and perhaps people will still get what I want them to get, but by example, rather than the developing of the institution. That's why I didn't want to miss the institution Yes, because you're doing the same thing. You're just doing it a different way. Yes. Yes. And this way is working. Yes, and, and it seems so, to be working well. Yeah, and so you're so let, let's just go back real quick. So you're in Chicago, and you've graduated, and you have all of this information. You've you have construction experience and architecture experience, and now you want to teach other architects how to do what you think is the right way to do architecture, or a, yes. a, a successful way of doing architecture. This yes, integrated process where you design it and build it and deliver it all in one package, and you're going to teach other architects how to do that. And that's this school that you were you were trying to put together. You got pretty far along with that, um, mm-hmm. but it was a constant push, constant struggle to get to where you wanted it to be, and then you got sick. And so yes. there's this this there's this push and pull, and it's not working. And then you get sick, and it's a and it's sick. The sickness is stress related. I can uh, I, yeah. I have a lot ex- of it. Yes. Yeah, I have experience with that as well, having s- significant illness through stress. I didn't want to brush over that either because I think there are a lot of architects out there who may be experiencing stress-related illnesses and not realize that it's stress. Yep. So if you're out there and you are feeling strange or things aren't working or you're not healthy and your doctors can't figure out what it is, consider that it might be stress. It sounds mm-hmm. it sounds a little strange until you're in that situation and you realize that it is. Yes. Um, and so that is a significant turning point in your life. Okay, I'm sick. This is not working. I need to make a different direction. So you... Say, okay, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore and I'm going to go take a break and I'm going to go find myself and I'm going to go out and hike. And so let's, let's just go from, from that point. You're out. So you decide, okay, I'm not going to do this school and I just need it. I need a break and I need to find a way to get the stress re- released so I don't end up dead. So where do you go and what do you do before you end up coming back to make the decision to go back to Florida? Um, I basically travel through about 15 states by car with my dog. I dropped everything I had in Chicago. I just sort of dropped it off. And there were the people callings that thought I was irresponsible, but they didn't understand that I was, that I almost died basically. And this was the the outcome of that. Um, so I traveled through 15 states staying, uh, watching sunrises and everyone I could, um, and when I was climbing, I was alone. I would turn off the phone. Um, I, I climbed alone at least three mountains of which one was a summit. Um, I couldn't do all three summits. It was winter. There is no, there, there's some that you just can't reach <laughs> unless you have a nice pick. So 
I um I thought that I would stay in that space because that space was you know, like the other end of the spectrum. I got sick and stressed and almost died. And now I'm in this bliss that you find when you climb a mountain. Um, so I almost thought I would stay there. I really did intend to stay. I was in Bend, Oregon, which is like four hours deep into east from Portland, like deep into the the forest, basically. Um, it's a place that's almost like secret. Nobody knows about it, but it's fantastic it's phenomenal i i stayed there for four or five weeks just my dog on a farm and me climbing mountains um as much as i could until the the turning point for me from that point was snow again like the Uh thought of a, a snowstorm just came like running against me and i said oh no i got you know and i called my dad no i think i think i'm going back to florida and I felt um, it, there was a, also some level of loneliness because that almost dying event, I was alone yeah. uh, in Chicago. So that also dragged along. Um, so I came back here and the first thing I did was go to my sister's house. And she's been in the Orlando area for over a decade. So I just landed there. There's my niece and nephew who are at this point like 10 and 7 and I was just so elated, like so happy to be home, basically. Yeah. Um, or what felt like home. So that's how I never left again. I attempted it. I attempted to leave. <laughs> uh, there, there was a there was a point where I thought I was going to get on a plane and go back to Chicago. I tried to work my way back. It it just didn't it didn't go that way. Yeah. Um. And I happened to stay here long enough that I met my husband, and so on, etc. Who who was in my sister's life for many years, but I was not in my sister's life yeah. for many years. So yeah, that's see, that's a fascinating story. I love those yeah. connections. <laughs> so you're out in Bend, Oregon, and it's just, you love it. And it's just a wonderful place to be. And then you realize that there's going to be snow, snow, yes. snow is coming. And you just don't want to you already left Chicago because of the snow and the cold and you just don't want to deal with it. So you're like, okay, I'm out of here. And, yes. <laughs> and and you go back home, basically. You go back it to sounds, Florida. It sounds like a freaking soap opera. Like when I listen to my own life, it's just I can't can't believe how complicated. But that's it is. what's so fascinating about your story. That's why I wanted you on the show because because I I've I've followed you all the way through. And when you were out there on the mountains, you disappeared from from online. So yeah. I didn't know where you went. The last I heard was that the that the school wasn't going to happen. Um, scrap the podcast recorded. <laughs> which is still in the archive somewhere. It's the only one that's never been released. And and so um you're out there and you're and you disappeared. And then all of a sudden you came back and you came back with a vengeance. So so you obviously you're out there, you you come back home to the warmth, you come back home to your family, mm-hmm. and and obviously it's where you belong. It's where you should should be at that moment. All of mm-hmm. these things that have happened to you through the story, obviously to me, as I'm listening to this, they all had to happen in order to get to where you are today. That if you pull yes. out any one of those pieces, as hard as some as hard as some of them may have been, you would have not been where you are today if you didn't experience that big loop that you went through. Correct. And so Correct. now you're back in you you end up back in Florida. You realize, uh-huh. okay, this is warm for one. I'm I'm home. And you're actually home. You're you're not literally home it wasn't your Orlando wasn't your home, but you're with your sister and you're yes. with your nephews and your nieces and it's, it's your home. And so mm-hmm. 
when you went back to Florida, did you know what you were going to do? Or did mm-hmm. you just kind of go back and say, okay, I'm just going back there and we'll see where it leads? Yes, it was more like that. And because of my very um, significant and broad experience, I became sort of this interest for government. So I dive into government, first county, then city, uh, with a break in between for my pregnancy. Um, the government agencies love me because I can, I am licensed, but I can cross over and I can do both parts well, the architecture part and the construction part. So in Chicago, before leaving, not that I want to revert back, I was an owner rep for the city, for the state. Mm-hmm. And when I got here, it was a direct hire, basically, from the government. So you're working uh, working for the government, a government yes, employee. Yes, when I first arrived yep. in Orlando, yes. Okay, and, so, um, and that type of work, what were you doing with that type of work? You just sort of administrative work? It was uh, a crossover, yet again, between uh, public works construction and then eventually asset management, which is more like an architectural role. Um, but during my pregnancy, I made the very deliberate decision to stay home and do zero work. So I was pregnant at home all of the pregnancy, which is 10 months plus four months Mm -hmm. of my daughter. So for about 14 months, I didn't really work. And all I did was read, exercise, do yoga and eat well, go to the gym and I and when I say read, this brings me back to the meeting, being prepared for what I do now. Lots of that reading was strategy, marketing, business, architecture, construction, like reading technical things for my license, reading things for entrepreneurship and business. And um, and then I, I like to think that she brought that to me. But I feel like my daughter created the firm that I that we run today. Um, it feels to me that she did that uh, yeah. on her way here, basically, uh, because it was so clear. It was just so vivid somewhere about halfway in my pregnancy, what I was supposed to do with Ponte Health. So that uh, idea happened while you were pregnant. Yes. While pregnant you, while you, right, you stopped, you took a break, you weren't yes. doing any work so that your mind was clear, yes. which, which those lessons you learned when you hit the mountains. So you learned, okay. This, this is an important event in my life. I need to stop and I'm going to experience this event and I'm going yes. to be pregnant and I'm going to have my child and I'm going to experience being a mom before I take the next step, wherever that may lead. And while you're pregnant, this idea comes to you. Yes. Yes. What would become Ponte Health? It was originally a much longer name, uh, <laughs> but it was <laughs> like it was it was Ponte Healthcare, Architecture and Planning. And then it, it, it eventually technically just sort of compressed into Ponte Health because it, it, it started to just develop into so many, like it just, it, it wanted to become so many things that mm-hmm. I said, okay, I can't call it Ponte Healthcare Architecture and Planning because that's, it, be, it was limiting. It was bigger to, than that. Yes. The, the yes. mission and the vision were bigger than architecture and planning. Yes. Yes. So when did you when did you know that it was bigger immediately that this idea was bigger or did it start as architecture and planning and then you just say, well, I could do this and I can do that and I can do this. How did, um, that, how did that transition happen? I don't know. I wish I could pinpoint how that happened. So it's just a, only, it was an evolution. Yes. I only remember thinking like if if I were to put myself or remain Ponte Healthcare Architecture and Planning, that I wasn't going to be able to tap on 
all that time that I spent in a job site. Yeah. Like that I was going to be limited to uh, construction administration rather than be put on the, in the field. Right. And in not, it's not only my experience, but even my education, right, was half construction. So why would I do that? And it just sort of evolved. And then I thought, well, I also want to give back. I also want to, so, so it made sense for it to become Ponte Health, that right. it's not about the thing that I do, but about the mission which reads to help expand the healing community, whatever that means, yeah. um, how, whatever it takes for me to accomplish that, basically. And as, I, as we started, it just slowly became, okay, uh, my husband, who's my business partner, is a realtor. He works with a broker. That made sense, that relationship, where we can pull people in through the brokerage firm. Um, and so now it's no longer even just design or designing construction. Now we can take people in from before owning the property. And it just, that's how it happened. It just kept, it could be this other thing. It could be yeah. technology. It could be the giving back. It could be, and it just, it's become more than I than where we started, basically. And, yeah. it, and, it, and it's moving. Like, it moves. Um, it, it evolves effortless, and grows. Effortless, effortlessly. It, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't take the work that I was putting into some of my other... <laughs> right, right. So, um, so now you've work. created this, this new organization, and it is doing the same thing that your school was going to teach, but now you're doing it for you. Yes. And you're creating this organization. And so so let so you've you come up with the idea while you're pregnant. You have you have your daughter, you you spend the time with her. What was the actual next step to go to where you want to go? So you have this idea. Now you're going to you're 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 going to execute on that idea. What did you do? I had to leap. There's a leaping point whether we like it or not. Where it's really scary because you say, "Well, if I leap, like from a job, how am I going to actually make it happen? Um, you know, and, and I had people that surrounded me that would say, you know how to do it. You know what to do. You've been doing this for 16, 17 years. You, you know, represented the government. You did that in, at, at many levels, city level, state level. You, you've been inside government. Plus, you've done design and construction on a job site. You know exactly what you need to do. But, it, but you're still scared to death. Yeah. Like an... I have, you know, and in my case with a child, a young child, one that wasn't even one, um, how am I going to do that uh, thing really? Uh, so the, 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 I take the leap and it's, it's ridiculously scary. And you're like, okay, if, if you have to leap in, what is the next thing you do? So the, the first thing was to acquire some accessible office space with an address that was, you know, credible and, so I moved into Lake Nona, which is known as Medical City. Of course, it was like a, a hitting the nail on the head with a hammer, moving into Medical City. But it was accessible, right? It's a co-work space. It doesn't cost a lot. Um, and then pushing little bits at a time. Like, what is the first thing? Okay, I need a, um, a business card. Okay, then what's the second best thing? Well, I need to get meetings with every hospital system. Uh, those, by the way, were very difficult. But if you're insistent enough and if you can find the right person, even if it means asking many people um, and you can figure out a way to sit down and you're honest, they will listen. And a lot of times, you know, doesn't mean they're going to give you work. 
Um, I've experienced both ways, but but sometimes you will find somebody that if you listen to enough, you realize that they do need you and that you can actually give them what they need. And then they trust it and they take the same leap back to you because it is a leap when they don't know you, which is what was happening to me. They don't know who I am. Like um, I'm this sort of 30 something, which is young to begin with, to be running some firm. And I just show up and I tell them, sure, I can run your construction. It doesn't right. matter that you right. have $5 billion of capital improvements. Um, so there's a certain level of leap from their end. Yeah. And, and you have to sort of do, you know, whatever it takes to blow out of the water, whatever expectations they may have of the you, which is how I, Right. And it's, that's sort of how I've been operating where, you know, they, they, they think one thing and that can prove that not only can I do what I promise, but I've overdone basically is how I run my everyday, yeah. <laughs> my everyday for the firm. So, you, um, so, so you're persistent. So, so persistence you, is a big thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I think one of the main because you're building this from scratch and that's a question that I get all the time. How do I start a firm? Well, the first thing you do is you come up with this idea and you create this vision and this mission and this is what you're going to do. And then you decide to leap, which is the hardest part. I've actually written a blog mm -hmm. post on that. And actually my very first podcast episode, my, my introduction episode of the podcast is about taking a leap. Um, and it's about the podcast, but it's the same idea is that if you don't jump, you'll never get to where you want to go. You have to take yes. that leap. Yes. So you have to make that decision and then you're just incrementally saying, okay, what do I do next? What do I do next? Yes. What do I do next? What do I do next? And you just kept doing that over and over and over again. And finally you got to the point of now I have to get some clients and you're doing this with no portfolio. No, you have lots of experience, but yes. you, ha you have no company yet. I mean, the company's there and it's established, but now you're going to go try to convince these, these people who are, have the jobs that you want to perform to give you the work. Yes. And so you said, okay, I'm just not going to take no for an answer. I'm just going to keep saying, just keep meeting and keep meeting and keep meeting yes. to the same people or new people and just keep going. And every time you do that, you get a little bit better at that. You learn a little bit more about who they are and what they're looking for and how you yes. can deliver to them. And so every yes. time you do it over and over and over again, you get a lot of no's up front, but the more you do it, you start getting a couple of yeses here and there with little things and you learn, oh, well, what made them say yes there? Oh, I'll keep doing that, right? So you keep learning and learning and learning until you start getting work. And then once you have work, then you can use that work to get more work, right? Mm -hmm. And then also have the work transform because that's the position that we're in. When you're first sort of looking to <clears throat> get enough to at least get by as yep. a firm, yep. at that point you you need to do, I don't want to say whatever it takes to get by because that's the wrong, and, and I'll talk about that, I guess. That's the wrong thing to do. You can't, you can't just take anything. Right. Um, I think that's detrimental to a firm, actually. Uh, it's more focused than that. It's, it's, yes, maybe at some level get anything, but are you serving the right person? Are you in the right market? Are you really, or, or is it you're getting anything just to get by? Because if you're getting anything to just get by with no order, with no strategy, then you're not going to get very far and it will always be anything to just get by. Um, that deliberate decision in my, at least in our case, where it was about healthcare, that was very deliberate uh, for both my, 
you know, my situations where I was sick and also the market in general. It, it wasn't an, it wasn't an accidental decision. I thought through market growth opportunity. Who does it? Does anybody really even do it the way I want to do it? And the answer was always, yes, I have room. No one's doing what you're trying to do. Yes, there is a need. Yes, it grows and never stops growing, actually. Um, so all those answers, they play a part. And that's market analysis. So if, if, if people are listening and you've heard market analysis and you wonder what it is, yes. that's what it is. You've, you've, you chose healthcare and you chose a target market. That's something that mm -hmm. I talk about a lot is choose a target market. Can't just do whatever you want to do. You want to choose a market. So you've chosen healthcare. And there was a reason you chose healthcare because of your experience and, and the things mm -hmm. that you've gone through and, and, and your new lifestyle and the market there was screaming for what you provide as a, mm -hmm. a, a in healthcare in Florida. And mm -hmm. so Florida is healthcare, you know, central. Yes. Uh, and so especially or especially Orlando. Yeah. And so <laughs> like it, so it's the right thing. It's the right market to choose. Let's take a quick break here to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect BQE Software, Arcat, and FreshBooks. This podcast episode is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of BQE Core. BQE Core revolutionizes the way architects manage projects, time and expenses, billing, and accounting. Made by BQE, the company behind ArchiOffice, Core saves you time while giving you the visibility, the flexibility, and the power you need to grow your firm. Work from anywhere, seamlessly collaborate, and gain transformative insights with Core's groundbreaking platform. Learn more and get a free trial at entrearchitect.com slash BQE. Hey, and if you want to see a demonstration of Core, I recently invited Stephen Burns of BQE Software to join me for a live Entree Architect special session webinar, where Steve had the opportunity to show us inside Core and all it has to offer us small firm architects. And a recording of that webinar is available to our community, the Entree Architect community, for free at entrearchitect.com slash BQE webinar. So go check that out. And when you're ready to give it a try, visit entrearchitect.com slash BQE and access your fully functional trial of Core free for 15 days. Hey, if you've been listening to this podcast anytime during the past few months, you've heard me talking about our friends over at RCAT, and hopefully you're already using their free resources on a regular basis. But for those of you who have not yet checked them out, RCAT is a great tool for small firm architects. RCAT has a huge library of free content, CAD, BIM, specifications, and more. And they've done all the work for you. I mean it. They've done all the work. If you need a spec, click on over and download a CSI three-part specification in multiple formats, free. How about CAD details or BIM objects? All free, click of a mouse. RCAT has tons of building product content ready for you to use, and it's all completely free. You don't even have to register to download the content. And they've recently launched something new. It's called Charette. Create a project, assign tasks, share and collaborate with colleagues and clients, all in real time. Pull content directly from the RCAT database or from anywhere out on the web and keep it in Charette. It's another free resource 
from RCAT for you, the Entree Architect community. Visit them right now. Go check them out, entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's A-R-C-A-T, entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. And click on the Charette icon right there on the homepage to check out Charette. Imagine what you can do if you had an additional two days every month to dedicate to anything that you want. Maybe you just want to spend more time on design. Maybe you want to start building that new business process. Maybe you want to start painting again. Maybe you want to spend more time with your kids. Or maybe you want to finally start that development project. Well, when you're a small firm architect using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, you could save 192 hours every month. That's two business days every month. That's the amount of administrative time that you could save this year if you're using FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses, automatically track your time for the whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. My favorite feature of FreshBooks is the automated email reminders sent to my clients to remind them to pay their bills. That's done automatically, and you control the whole thing. Sign up for a free 30-day unrestricted trial and get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid faster. Visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access FreshBooks for free. And be sure to enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. BQE Software, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. And then so now you're, you're being persistent with all of these, these uh, contacts, meeting them, meeting them, meeting them, getting a couple of jobs. What happens now? Well, now I am in this uh, gro- a little bit of a growth mode. Like I'm, I'm in the place where perhaps a couple people can start helping me. Um, and just recently we signed our first actual private smaller physician building, which is, I think, sort of a sweet spot for us where um, it's either a small physician's group or a doctor uh, because what what we do, which is the the really the efficient resources management, I think where it works best is at that scale. doesn't mean I don't do it and I cannot do it for the hospital system because obviously it is working because of my client currently is the largest hospital system in Central Florida. But that that small physicians group or single physician really can benefit from how we do things, which um, goes all the way back to the real estate acquisition. And that includes this particular client that we're working with. She hasn't selected the real estate and we've started. Uh, so I become a part of the real estate selection, um, which comes with jurisdictional analysis and all that stuff. But I mean, sort of simultaneous with the conceptual design process and even financing, if that's what they're going to do. We've sort of partnered with banks and things because they have special programs for medicine, um, obviously, because the doctors are, when they're licensed, they can make so much money that certain banks have special lending for people that practice medicine. So, so we've tapped into those banks and, and we can be that single point for that doctor who, 
like for this one in case in all honesty she's still working as a and as an emergency physician somewhere she doesn't have time to stop and uh, do all these things herself so we're doing everything for her from selecting the real estate all the way through even to her occupancies and uh, uh, all her um, any not just permits for construction and occupancy for the building but all her licensing to run the facility as an independent she's almost like a micro hospital but that's a client next to our sort of our special client, which has been uh, Orlando Health. So you 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 get to this point, you have these these clients now. How many people are working with you now? Uh, we are three at the moment, um, and to me, really, is project dependent mm -hmm. because I feel like I could be more people. I could really be a lot more people, but. Um, but it, it, we're not there yet. I'm still sort of in the revolving cycle of what yeah. it means to be net 30. Net 30 is rough. Um, what does that any, mean for people who are listening? Yes, net 30 means that when you work for somebody like the hospital system, um, most sort of uh, sophisticated organizations will have this. They will pay out your invoice at net 30, literally like on the 30th day. So you'll invoice them. It doesn't matter how small or big it is they will sit on that invoice until day 30. Uh, and, it, and, it's, and that's tough. Uh, that's a di difficult cycle to break for trying to build um, sort of uh, working capital in the firm. So I find it that because I'm still within the cycle, it's really hard to hire. Or like it's really hard to bring people in to help me because People work for a paycheck weekly or biweekly. It's very hard for people to work net 30 like the business will. Right. Um, I did it actually once as an employee at net 30, and it was it was very difficult, um, as it is difficult now for the for our firm basically. So how did you how did you so you start this firm uh, from scratch? How do you fund the firm? How do you how do you get that first office and the business cards and the employees and all of you, that stuff? You, yeah, I had to, you bootstrap that. It has to be done that way. I had to bootstrap it from my job, what I had as a job and, and really hope for the best. I do have uh, investors. Talk, that have talk about that a little bit. What, who are they and what do they do? Okay, so Next. there's a, if you, depending on how you create the business structures, in our case, we have a holdings company above it's not above the architect it's above the building company and your friends and family have at least in florida by law have some leeway to buy into your company um you have limitations of how much money they can give you and it can only be like 99 cents really around that a share um that's in, in what I mean by that is that's outside of the SEC. Like the second you start sort of um, going outside those boundaries, which I think are set by state, then the SEC gets involved. Mm -hmm. you, you register shares. Um, you probably have a lawyer doing all this for you and you sell um, then your shares at value. And that's how you eventually get to an IPO and all of that in the market. So we have our shareholders, which worked as family and friends. Mm -hmm. or, so a lot of that was our 
our money to get started outside of my, you know, our own money or my right, own money to right. from. So you had some seed, seed funding from investors. Yes. That, that were all yes. family through the family and friends format of investing. Yes. Which uh, for us now is about 55. 55 like, people. Yes. 55 mm-hmm. people. Uh, Mike, you call that micro investment though. Mm-hmm. N- not a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some of them 500, a thousand, you know, small, um, just enough to sort of get rolling. And if, if you can, uh, find seed money or get a loan or have enough saved up, then it's long enough to get to the point where a client will fund, um, at least minimally your, um, your work or enough that you don't need to struggle. But that process for us was a year. Mm-hmm. It was a year to get to that. And that's a long time. And so that, a- so that investment money, that seed money sort of helped you establish yourself, gain some, put together some marketing, do all of that persistent meetings that gives you the, the money and the finance to build that initial foundation mm-hmm. until you can get those first clients that then start funding the company. Is that what you did? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, in the things, the steps that I took with that were very deliberate. You know, I joined every chamber of commerce. I started hosting things for the chamber of commerce. I paid for advertising. I mean, there are things that we think when we get started that we shouldn't be spending money on, but it's it's not true. Um, to to save two hundred dollars, uh, say for yourself, versus spend the two hundred dollars on an ad um, in some highly read publication. Um, will have make a significant difference. Um, for example, very early on, I started a marketing campaign through what is called the Orlando Medical News. Their readership is huge, and most of it is medical. So we, though not millions, we did make the effort to invest on campaigns through them. And that's made a huge difference because he's more like a partner. He's really helped us uh, push the firm um, out into the world, if you will, to people that are in medicine that are not architects, that are not builders, but that are potential clients. Yeah. Um, that's another thing which I would have talked about um, with regards to starting a firm. Architects are very good, myself included in the past, at talking to each other. We are not very good at talking to our clients. Mm. We don't get out looking for our clients. You really, if you're starting a firm, you really need to stop. Look at your Twitter bait. For example, Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter specifically. I had When I left, when you told me I disappeared, I had a huge Twitter account, thousands of people, maybe 5,000, 6,000 people, yeah. of which probably 5,000 were architects. I was making the mistake everybody makes. And when I disappeared off the face of the earth, <laughs> called internet, Um, I took all that out and in my process of that thinking and and being pregnant and being home, I realized I was talking to the wrong people. Like if, if I want my client to be the hospitals, I need to talk to the hospitals. I don't need to talk to other architects and I certainly don't need to talk to architects designing hospitals because that's (laughs) flat out my competition. Um, so I started very purposefully reestablishing all of my social media around following my clients and, and, and connecting with my clients and not peers um, or competition. 
so for example, not, not just Twitter, because that I follow like a lot of women surgeons in Twitter, but if you look at my LinkedIn, I have, I've, I've made considerable effort to connect specifically to executives in the design departments or construction departments of certain hospital systems. So you'll see that the director of construction of uh, Nemours or the director of construction of uh, uh, John Hopkins, and those are the people that have, that have started to collect in there. Um, once in a while, on and off, like technology people or innovation people or futurists, because I'm very interested in those areas or in charity, but I have made considerable effort to follow and connect specifically with those who would give me work. Um, and that has made a huge difference as well, I feel, in where we are. Yeah, very, very good advice. So you're, you're building this firm. You're super busy, crazy busy. Yes. I have two questions. And, and then I also want to talk about Chicago because you're, you're talking, you, you mentioned before something about Chicago. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, for one, how do you keep the stress down now? Because now you're all in on this. You are a full blast and you're obviously conscious about your health. So how do you, how do you stay healthy? Um, and you're also a great mom. You're very focused. I follow you on Twitter and Instagram and I see that you're with your daughter and you're an active mom. How are you doing that? How are you you know, keeping your priorities straight and staying healthy? Yes, I have to be very deliberate about it. And by deliberate, I mean literally, or at least for the most part, I get home, I take a shower, 2, 3 p.m., and I have to sleep for an hour, for example. That's something that I do almost every day. Uh, there are the days that I cannot do it. But for the most part, I do that every day. Even if I wake up and start work at 7.30. I'm, a, I'm an early person. As a construction person, it's easy to get there. Um, and I will start working at 7 or 7.30. But by 2 or 3, I'm sleeping at least half an hour. And then once I get my daughter, I stop all work. Um, I may answer, I, I, I do function almost still as an owner rep, so I may answer a text mm -hmm. um, or a call if I really had to in the times that I have my daughter, but for the most part, I do not. Um, and when she sleeps, because she's a baby, she you know, 18 months, she'll fall asleep at around 7 or 7.30. At that point, I'll pick up whatever I didn't pick up while I was with her. So whether it's a text or an email, um, but generally, because I'm very proactive, I don't usually have to do anything mm -hmm. in the hours that I'm with my daughter. So basically, I think it's about hyper-focus. Um, you really have to be focused in, at, in the task at hand. And that sometimes is not work, mm -hmm. but your family. And don't blend them. You know, don't, don't mix them up. I don't think that's beneficial um, at all. And I find that the hyper focus will also allow me to rest enough to then sort of start all over in that overdrive and um, over everything that I live in uh, the next day. So, yeah. and I do sleep long hours. I mean, besides the trying to sleep in the middle of the day, I literally go to sleep at like eight and wait. So I sleep about 10 or 11 hours a night. Um, this is another thing. It's I think it's the beauty of starting a firm is being able to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't think you start a firm to work 80-hour weeks. I don't think you should. I think if you put in the work, 
the hard work to get licensed and go through all these hours with other people that you may or may not get along with to which I did, by the way, I love Jovi who gave me my hours, but, um, the once, uh, once you get past all that, you put in all that work, don't work 80 hour weeks. I mean, you should really be, it should be a time to start to enjoy all that hard work, right? At, At least that's how I see it. And as far as the stress, it's, it's hard to explain, but the, the stress is different mm-hmm. because it's my own and not imposed upon me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So it, the stress levels are different and, you know, and, and they don't tie to the thing that ties most people to stress, which is uh, sort of your income. Because at this point, you're running a firm, your income starts getting a little bit better than your job, right? So you, when you had a job, you you made whatever it is, but when you're running a firm, now you can start billing as a firm, it starts to look very differently. So your stress levels change. Um, but I think, I really think that's the beauty of it. Imbalance is very important. Um, as far as exercise, I tend to exercise, particularly yoga, but have not been so good these last few months only because of really mostly my daughter. She still gets yeah. a lot of my attention and I think it's more important that I do that yeah. uh, still than, than say worry about whether I go to the gym for two hours a day. I'd rather give those two hours to my daughter. Yeah. So, so very, very intentional about, yes, about your, intentional. your routines. You've established some very specific routines. Yes. You've created this transition zone between work and, and home. Where you come home, you take a shower, you take a nap, and then when you wake up, you're my daughter gets yes. Yeah, so there's this this very intentional transition between work and and home. Yes, Um, and you know the fact that you have control, so the stress is different stress. the The fact that you can come home at two o'clock and take a shower and take a nap and then be mom is because you've started your own firm and you have your own structure and your own schedule. Yes, so it's a very very. intentional. Um, and you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, the, um, the, uh, campaign that you're running for Puerto Rico, you want to talk about that very briefly. And, and, uh, and then I want to hear about your, your future, what your, your future is for Ponte health. Okay. So the campaign, uh, which you were so generous to help us with, um, I just felt the really strong need to, to carry it through because of the issues that are post storm disasters for babies, uh, especially, um, or more significantly about feeding. Uh, when you have the post disaster condition, you have, uh, ponding waters and lack of drinking waters and things like that, that start to propagate the seas. Um, so because our mission is to help expand the healing community, of course, the, the post disaster condition is sort of against that it's, is working directly to our mission. Um, babies that breastfeed do get sick through lactation. Um, and then mothers that don't get enough water will not be able to breastfeed. So it's just a lot of compounding problems, if you will. So when, the things with Puerto Rico are so bad. And I know, and, and again, I'll repeat this. It's in many places in the world. Yeah. It, it, think about Caracas, and I'll, I'll point that out. Caracas is a place where I grew up, and I love that city. And conditions there are horrendous. Like, there's not even a word to describe babies in Caracas today. I cannot even begin to tell you. But the political 
environment there doesn't allow me to help. Mm -hmm. So because I'm, I can't help, um, it doesn't mean that I don't think the issue is there and it happens really across the board. So with, with Puerto Rico, it was really bad, but they, but I had people there and I, we, it's easier to get things, um, there. And I wanted to sort of make a difference with the baby specifically, as you know, it required a lot of money to get a charter, which is what I originally intended to fly in. And it hasn't really gone that way. So I've, we've sort of re-strategized into, okay, can we make a direct connection with a pediatric hospital? And we did. Uh, it's called San Jorge in San Juan. They're basically taking in all the small babies and children from vicinity and beyond. And they'll take it. But they they did tell me the kids are coming in really sick uh, and really dehydrated and Though people are donating formulas and foods and things, they don't have bottles to give them the formulas. They don't have they don't have enough Pedialyte for the dehydration. So, so with this campaign, we are trying to get a handle at least at some level of this need that they have, specifically in the pediatric hospital. Plus, I'm tr I'm trying to work out ways to get more remote. But the truth is, the island is sort of destroyed in a way that you can't really get around mm -hmm. so there's there's more to it than that and you know if i had a, a plane myself I, I would have already gotten there but i'm i'm not we're not there yet yeah. so i do the best that i can and and it evolved into what i call now disaster babies because i feel the need to be like a first responder every time now because i i, I feel like the babies are not being thought of enough if you will, yeah. but with all the health issues that get compounded into it, uh, into them and their condition um, post disaster. So Disaster Babies was born and it's, it's a mission. It's, it's not an organizational structure or anything like that. It's just a mission by us uh, to try to carry, carry out um, prog progressively, basically from this point forward. Yeah. So, so the big mission of, you know, chartering an airplane and flying this in there um that was a big leap much yes. like much like other leaps you've taken so everything i do seems to be yeah, a leap <laughs> right and so you're going you're going to you know feed babies in puerto rico and you're going to do this as big as you can and so you say okay i'm going to charter a plane the plane costs thirty thousand dollars we're going to fill it with 1600 pounds of food and, and we're going to fly it over there and we're going to save a bunch of babies <laughs> yes. okay that didn't happen but it it at a smaller scale, it did happen. You know, you you collected uh, enough money to send some relief to Puerto Rico, and even bigger, it's become a long-term mission of yours now. It's, it's yes. become part of your organization to be a first responder in these disasters through Ponte Health. It's part of your your overall mission to help help and heal. Yes. So this becomes part of your your mission, uh, which goes back to your name, Ponte Health can be as flexible as you want it to be. Now you have this this seed of philanthropy that can grow as you grow and ultimately can become the $30,000 plane figuratively um, and help babies whenever there's a disaster, you can respond because you'll have started this now and as you grow, it will grow. Um, yes. And it'll become a really big thing. It, it, is there any way that people who are listening can can contribute to what you're doing? Uh, yes, the, particularly the disaster babies, there's a link. They can go to tinyurl.com forward slash disaster babies PR. 
uh, that takes you directly to the GoFundMe campaign. But what's fun about that campaign is that my business partner for slash husband, who happens to be a great martial artist, has kindly donated an hour and a half of self-defense training, uh, which, by the way, he is a Krav Maga instructor certified. Krav Maga, I don't know if you know, is a uh, Israeli self-defense technique. Oh, wow. It yep. was created by the uh, the Israeli self-defense forces, and he teaches it week week in and week out. And I said, what if we what if we teach in exchange for this ten dollar donation and above? So whatever anybody can give above ten dollars, they will get access to this hour and a half training. And it's, it, you know, and it just works well. So you want to learn a little bit of self-defense? You, all you have to do is donate $10 to our baby fund at tinyurl.com forward slash disaster babies PR, which is our first, uh, first, first respondent mission yep. uh, for the babies that will hopefully we'll be able to respond every time uh, something significant, as long as we can, of course, something significant happens um, around the planet. And, um, and you know, and, and philanthropy really is is not just inherent in me. I was I really have always felt the need to give back. It's just something that I do because maybe because my life has not been the easiest, generally speaking. Uh, but it is it is inherent in a strong part of our company. Uh, every time somebody comes in that they say they want to speak, uh, you know, work with us or grow with us, I tell them all the same. They have to commit ten percent of their time to giving back. And it has to be to help expand the healing community and the firm itself. We're committing to giving back 10% of profits forever to giving back um, in the form of um, healing community environments and buildings. So hopefully one day this baby's mission will also be, you know, maternity wards and, yeah. you know, and, and uh, children's orphanages, et cetera, et cetera. Well, fo um, following your, your, your last few years uh, and being sort of a, an audience to what you've been doing, I have no doubt that that will happen uh, in a very big way. Uh, and you'll be giving back and, and it'll be a major, major uh, contribution to the world. Oh, well, thank you. We try. We'll have we'll have links to all of that on our on our show notes at entrearchitect.com slash episode 189. Uh, so they can just go to episode 189 and we'll have links to the campaign and everything else that that you're, you're talking about. Before we go, I want to I want to know what your future plans are for Ponte Health. Uh, and then I want to ask you the, my final question that I ask everybody. So what's, what's in the future for Ponte Health? Well, I hope some more of what we do now, which is to sort of serve as an integral, uh, in integral, uh, turnkey, um, company. But the truth is I don't, um, I don't necessarily omit the idea, the idea or goal that I've had to actually create a health system. And that gets very complicated if I, if I start explaining it, but uh, I do want to enter that space. Um, but it'll be along the lines of our own real estate holdings and development. Uh, so you can consider Ponta Health a sort of developer. Um, also, you know, I see your company as a really deeply involved with research. Uh, scientific and for buildings and in technology. So, so I've been um, pushing a lot toward the um, sort of innovation area. And it's even part of the reason we're at the Guidewell Innovation Space for our office. Um, 
we're surrounded by technology people at the moment. Um, and plus I see us around the world. I mean, that sounds crazy, but I see it. Um, my I, daughter I, showed it to I, me. <laughs> I don't think anything sounds crazy with you anymore because watching, <laughs> watching where you're going and how fast you're getting there, no, no doubt. <laughs> so that's sort of the, the, the whole thing. I see us um, doing many things, but primordially giving back. Yeah, yeah. One step at a time, right? Yes. Just what's next, right? Do that. Yeah. What's next? Do that. Yeah, one thing at a time. Yeah, yeah. So exciting. So before we wrap up, um, let me ask you this final question here. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Okay, so instead of one, I'll give you two, okay. which I live by, and I think it, it will seriously change uh, the way they see themselves. And A is to read a lot and not architecture. Read business, read marketing, read strategy, read competitive advantage, read leadership, uh, in, you know, sort of self-reflection. Um, for example, one of uh, a really great book, um, even though it's crazy because it's completely unrelated that I read recently was uh, uh, Tools of Titans. Yeah. And, and that and I thought it was great. I mean, there were little things in there that were fantastic. Um, but uh, Blue Ocean Strategy, the Fascinate book, Made the Stick, all these books are, are great reads that every architect, I, I feel, or at least the ones that are trying to run a firm, need to really get into. And then the second thing is to uh, talk to a potential client. Like literally walk in the door and shake a hand and and talk to them and listen and listen a lot because you'd be surprised where there's space uh, for you to serve them. But unless you're walking in, doing a handshake and sitting down and listening, you're just never going to get there. So, so good. So good. The advice <laughs> is so good. The uh, the links to all those books as well will also be on on the uh, the show notes at entrearchitect.com slash episode one hundred eighty nine. Um, PonteHealth.com is the website. P O N T E Health.com. So you can go check out uh, what what Tabitha is doing there. Is there anywhere else that you'd like to uh, have people connect with you and follow what you're doing? Uh, well, just I'm Ponte Health across the board, and I'm the one that you know the Twitter, the Instagram. I'm the one so far doing it all, though I I am aware that at some point I will need somebody else to do it. Um, and on LinkedIn, I'm also Ponte Health, though I am Tabitha. Um, and they can the only personal thing I have is really I created a, a personal Twitter. Uh, account again, but it's empty. It's not my 5,000 people account that I used to have. I think I don't have more than 10 or 20 people in there now. Uh, but uh, really, those are the only places. And other than that, you know, um, I think it's easy to find me that way. Um, and that's what I got. Okay, that sounds good. Tabitha, thank you very much for sharing your story and for sharing all the tremendous amount of knowledge here. So much value in what you're, you're talking about. So many lessons to be learned. Thank you for uh, coming here on Entree Architect Podcast and sharing your story. No, thank you so very much for having me. I mean, finally, and, and it, not the archived version, <laughs> but the current version of me. It's great. Thank you so very much. I'm going to I'm gonna hold that one for ransom. The first one is going to be ransom. <laughs> when you become That's a great. multimillionaire, I'm going to say, hey, you remember back? <laughs> That's so, hilarious. And we'll, we'll have, I love it. We'll have another episode when you, when you 
when you break that billion dollar company mark and we'll talk about how you got there from here. Thanks, okay. thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so very much. What a great and inspiring story Tabitha has. I can't wait to see where Tabitha goes from here. Uh, it's it's every time I see what she's doing, it inspires me to be a better me, to build a better firm, to build a better platform here at Entree Architect for you. If you were inspired or learned something from this episode, share it. Share it with a friend. Pick a friend and share this episode with them. Share the link, entrearchitect.com slash episode 189. This is episode 189, and that is the link to share, entrearchitect.com slash episode 189. And don't forget to visit the website for the free course. Go download it. It's free, Profit for Small Firm Architects. It is a very valuable resource that we give away. Um, it is certainly something that we could sell for probably two or $300, but we give it away. We want you to be introduced in what we're doing at Entree Architect, uh, and that is a great way to, to introduce you to the Entree Architect platform and the things that we're doing at Entree Architect Academy. Um, and it's very, very beneficial. If you, if you only take that course and that's all you do, I'm happy for it. Uh, it will definitely teach you to be a more profitable architect. And in the end of the day, that's my goal. My goal is to help you succeed as a small firm architect. So go download that course right now. It's free, entrearchitect.com slash free course. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to go build a better business so you can be a better architect. You can't be the best you can be if you're struggling to make money, to struggling to be profitable, struggling to pay your bills. So go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, 
then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.